0: Good afternoon, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the podcast, The Endurance of Labor Laws. I am your lovely host, Leslie Sullivan, and today is episode 69, and this is part two of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. So we are moving right along, diving in a little bit deeper to the EPA. It's a very fascinating topic. I love it. Um, It's kind of neat to see the beginnings of this and to see where it's going. I think it's awesome what all we are seeing because I'm learning so much, things I never knew about the EPA. But first of all, I want to give a big shout out to my listeners. So let me go to my list here because you guys are awesome. Love you very much. So a big shout out to Virginia, Texas, our lovely neighbor, Pennsylvania. Hey, how you doing? Oklahoma, New York, British Columbia, Alabama, Oregon, Massachusetts, hey Massachusetts, in Florida. Love you, Florida. Florida, I bet you're having wonderful weather right now. Cause at the moment in Oklahoma, we have had yet another cold snap. And when I woke up this morning, it was a blizzard outside. Yet yesterday, it was so nice and warm and beautiful. (laughs) So Oklahoma tends to keep us on our toes. But let's see here. A big shout-out in terms of countries to the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. That is wonderful there. So first of all, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping in terms of some of the Superfund sites. So I want to let you know about Rhode Island, they did not have very many Superfund sites to start with, but they have cleaned up one. Um, Let's see here. I want to give credit where credit is due. So let's see here. The one that has been cleaned up and is cleaned up a while ago, this one was called Davis Landfill. It was located in the province, or sorry, in the province, in the county of Providence. The problem that they had there was on-site groundwater, surface water, and sediments contaminated with volatile organic compounds, such as vinyl chloride and benzene, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, heavy metals, including manganese, arsenic, lead, and the pesticides chloridane and DDT. It was added to the list June 10, 1986. It was cleaned up and good to go as of August 13, 1999. So congratulations, Rhode Island, you get a gold star there. And plus Rhode Island, you're doing a great job in terms of not having a bunch of super Superfund sites to begin with. So that is great. I love to see good things like that. So back over to the Environmental Protection Agency. We're going to talk a little bit about its history in the 1970s and then possibly move into the 1980s because I love learning about this because I was born in 84. So it's really neat to learn about things that happened before I was born and also when I was a little girl because I've noticed that a lot of these Superfund sites that we are discussing, they were added to the national priorities list during the 80s. And so what happened during the 80s was the Superfund Act or law or amendment, whatever word you want to use, was passed. And so that's when They really started to rev up um, their projects in terms of identifying toxic hazardous sites. They were already put on an EPA list of sorts before the EPA was founded. These sites were noted by different departments. So the good thing about President Nixon was that He basically brought all those together under one agency so that way they could identify them quickly and try and knock them out quickly. Unfortunately, the EPA has not been successful at knocking out the Superfund sites in a quick manner, much less in a productive manner, because they are now uh, utilizing a $9 billion budget per year, which is very concerning. But let's take a look at the 1970s here. It says, in its first year, the EPA had a budget of $1.4 billion dollars and 5,800 employees. At its start, the EPA was primarily a technical assistance agency that set goals and standards. That is what the EPA started out as, and that's what it needs to stay as. But unfortunately, the reason why their budget has gone up to $9 billion is because they have um, expanded too quickly, and they have turned into a very, um, I guess, irrational and tyrannical federal agency, and they're not as bad as others, but let me put it this way. I don't hear very many good things about the EPA, EPA because they have been trying to uh, put people out of business. They actually go after people um, that currently have Superfund sites, and then they go after people retroactively, even though the EPA may have already bankrupted them. But then also they have tried and have found ways to legally confiscate people's property via the strong arm of the government. So, the EPA was not founded to bully people. It was founded to protect, preserve, restore, and repair our environment. To repair our lands, our oceans, our water systems. It was never intended to harass and bully people. But unfortunately, the EPA has slowly become that way. It's very unfortunate. So it says, soon, new acts and amendments passed by Congress gave the agency its regulatory authority. So, there are things that do need to be passed in terms of acts and amendments so that way the EPA can do its job. But unfortunately, sometimes these, um, these acts and amendments, they go too far and they bully people, and we're not supposed to do that. The EPA, it, it's supposed to set goals and standards, but it's also supposed to help people get things back to what their land was before. It's not supposed to bankrupt them. Because, see, here's the thing, if EPA comes after you, they have the purse of the federal government. So they basically have all these funds that they can use to legally go after private citizens. And yet private, private citizens, they don't have the same access to money that the federal government does. Because the money that the federal government has access to are, um, are our tax dollars, unfortunately. So that's why the EPA has gotten too, too big for its boots. Even though we do need EPA, I do think they do a lot of good, but now they're doing less good and they're doing more harm. Hence, we still have 40,000 Superfund sites that have not been cleaned up. So it goes on to say, a major expansion of the Clean Air Act was approved later that month. We're talking about in the 1970s here. It says here, the EPA staff, the original EPA staff, when they signed up, and started working for the EPA, there was a lot of hype. There was a lot of excitement in terms of what they were doing because they knew that they were taking on something that needed to be done. And plus the United States, the people of the United States, the general public, they were all for the EPA because it was the public outcry in the 50s and 60s to local governments and the federal governments that said, hey, we, we've got some toxic waste in our communities. We need to get this cleaned up. So There were a lot of people across the board on both sides of the aisle that actually were very excited about the EPA. It's just now the EPA has gotten out of hand. It's turned into a bureaucracy. Instead of actually helping the people of the United States, it's bullying them. And it's actually confiscating their monies and their their private property, which is not what the United States was founded on at all. So that's very disappointing. It says, when EPA first began operation, members of the private sector felt strongly that the environmental protection movement was a passing fad. I don't believe that statement because there were people in the private sector that ran these companies that they were concerned about things that they were discovering within their industry. So I don't think the private sector felt strongly that the EPA was a passing fad. I think... More than anything, they were probably concerned that, hey, yes, this is a good thing to have the EPA, but what is the federal government going to do if it gets out of control? Because that's where the private sector always gets, gets concerned. Yes, we, we value our government, but we don't want a tyrannical government. I think the private sector was probably more along the lines of being concerned because whenever you expand the federal government, you're taking a huge risk of it invading your privacy, confiscating your property, and bullying you and bankrupting you. So it's kind of those things, they have a legitimate concern to be concerned about things like that. So then it goes on to say the burning, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but the Chuyahoga River in 1969 had led to a national outcry. In December 1970, a federal grand jury investigation Led by U.S. Attorney Robert W. Jones, began and it was in regards to water pollution allegedly being caused by about 12 companies in northeastern Ohio. It was the first grand jury investigation of water pollution in the area. The Attorney General of the United States, John N. Mitchell, held a press conference on December 18, 1970 referencing new pollution control litigation with particular reference to work with the new Environmental Protection Agency and announcing the filing of a lawsuit that morning against the Jones and Laughlin Steel Corporation for discharging substantial quantities of cyanide into that river near Cleveland. Jones filed the misdemeanor charges in district court alleging violations of the 1899 Rivers and Harbors Act. Now I want to make a note here that You know, even people long ago cared about the environment. Because see, right here, we have mention of a of an act or a law from 1899. So there are some people that think, oh, our ancestors didn't know what they were doing. They were ignorant. No, they were not. They were actually very smart for their day. You know, it would be unwise to think that they didn't know what they were doing. Because see, I look at it this way. You know, whatever we're doing today, whatever you and I are accomplishing today, is technically is technically considered modern for us. But people from the people a hundred or five hundred years in the future, when they look back at what we did during our lifetime, it would be very foolish and stupid of them to think, oh, they were just stupid. You know, previous generations, they didn't know what they were doing. They were so ignorant. Would you like it if someone from the future talked that way about you? No. So I think we need to be respectful of people that lived in the 1800s. We need to be respectful of all people. But here's the thing. They knew what they were talking about back then. But you have to remember, we have the Industrial Revolution. We have inventions being invented. And here's the thing. Whenever you invent something new, it's literally brand new. You don't have any do's and don'ts already on the books of what to do and what not to do because it's technically brand new so whenever you are the pioneer in an industry there are going to be more mistakes than an industry that's not brand new and has been around a while and already knows what they're doing you know it's almost like with um, transplants you know like organ transplants you know back in the day it was considered way riskier to do an organ transplant because It was fairly new technology decades ago. I don't know when they started doing uh, organ transplants. If I had to guess, I would say the 60s or 70s, and I think they perfected it more and more as time goes by. And I'm probably wrong about that date range, but I'm just saying that in regards to modernity and how we look at things, everything has a beginning. An example of this is the CT scan or the MRI machine. You know, at one point, those machines were just ginormous. They took up an entire floor of a building. You know, we have to remember that the the, uh, the technology that we have today, it's if it's not in its, in its infancy, it was in its infancy at one point in time in the past. So you kind of need to give people the benefit of the doubt and just not assume that people are stupid or they didn't know what they were doing or they're ignorant, uneducated. That's that's not always true. So we can't need to be careful of how we, how we view and how we judge people from the past. because I do believe they cared about the United States and they cared about the environment. otherwise, why would they have a, an act or a law from 1899 about rivers and harbors? Obviously it was a concern for them even back then. I mean, that, that's just basic environmental and I can't say environmentalism, excuse me, my mouth is dry. I'm a little dehydrated because the air is so dry here right now in Oklahoma because of the cold snap that we had. But anyway, it goes on to say, partly based on such litigation experience, Congress enacted the Federal Water Pollution Control Act Amendments of 1972, better known as the Clean Water Act. The CWA established a national framework for addressing water quality, including mandatory pollution control standards, I agree with that, to be implemented by the agency in partnership with the states. That is very smart to do that because a lot of this stuff needs to be handled at the state level first before you reach out to the federal government because the federal government is not the be-all-in-all. Unfortunately, some people just think, oh, well, just let the federal government handle it, and they just pass the hockey puck over to the federal government. Well, that's not correct to do that. We, the people, are the federal government. And if anything, we need to be handling things at a state level first, and reaching out to the federal government should be the last resort Because as states, we're supposed to be able to handle our own problems. If we're not able to handle our own problems, then I kind of need to ask, what's going on that we can't handle it? It goes on to say, Congress also amended the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, also known as FIFRA, in 1972, sorry, requiring the EPA to measure every pesticide's risk Against its potential benefits, I completely agree with that because again, it reminds me of when I go to Lowe's and I walk down the pesticide aisle and I just find it creepy. All these chemicals, usually industrial grade or commercial grade chemicals, that just regular everyday people like you and me can purchase, and they should not be used in residential areas. And if they are used in residential areas, it should be a last resort, not a first resort. Says. Congress passed the Safe Drinking Water Act in 1974, requiring the EPA to develop mandatory federal standards for all public water systems. That's awesome. Which serves 90% of the United States population. The law required the EPA to enforce the standards with the cooperation of state agencies. That is awesome because, again, a lot of this should be handled at the state level first. Because states should be more responsible for themselves than just you know being a nanny state and just expecting the federal government to cover everything. That's not the point of being a state in the United States. Plus, if you keep trying to make yourself reliant upon the federal government, don't be surprised when your when your government becomes tyrannical. Because the more you rely on them, the more power you give them over you. Unfortunately, that's just how it is. This says in October 1976, Congress passed the Toxic Substances Control Act, also known as TSCA, which, like um, FIFRA, related to the manufacturer uh, labeling and usage of commercial products rather than pollution. This act gave the EPA the authority to gather information on chemicals and require producers to test them. Good, I agree with that. Gave it the ability to regulate chemical production and use with specific mention of PCBs, and required the agency to create the national inventory listing of chemicals. I agree with that because I think we need to have record of what chemicals we have being uh, invented, bought, and sold in the United States. Because just think about you know, the, the chemicals that you can go to the store and buy. At one point in time, the United States had no idea what was being sold on the market. That's really creepy. That's like not knowing what cars you have available on your market that are being bought and sold. So if you don't know what cars are being manufactured, how can you catch a recall and how can you enforce a recall like if there's something dangerous going on you know, with an airbag or something? That's why this stuff needs to be reported and it needs to be monitored. That doesn't give this federal agency or any federal agency permission to harass and bully anyone in the private sector. It's just setting standards And goals and priorities, that's what it is. No harassment, no bullying. Unfortunately, the EPA has gone into harassing and bullying. That's why people don't always like the EPA now. It says Congress also enacted the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, also known as RCRA, in 1976, significantly amending the Solid Waste Disposal Act of 1965. It tasked the EPA with setting national goals for waste disposal, conserving energy and natural resources, reducing waste, and ensuring environmentally sound management of waste. I agree with that. That should be kind of non-negotiable, like we should want to be good with the environment and be careful of how we are disposing of waste, regardless of what kind of waste it is. Accordingly, the agency developed regulations for solid and hazardous waste that were to be implemented in collaboration with the states. That is exactly how that should go down, because different states produce different things. However, if you have these policies and procedures and these standards and goals in place, then you are limiting as much damage as possible to the environment if you have contamination or spills. So you're trying to keep things as clean and as environmentally safe as possible, while at the same time, still having a good industry that, you know, provides services, um chemicals and also provides jobs for people. So here's the thing there's some people that are completely against chemicals but you know that doesn't really make any sense because a lot of these chemicals are made from ingredients or substances from nature so just because something has the word chemical in its title that doesn't mean it's completely bad or that it should never be produced that would make absolutely no sense whatsoever because there are so many chemicals that are made that we actually need that you know, not all of them are toxic or hazardous. You know, sometimes the word chemical gets a bad name, and it shouldn't. It's a product that is used for so many different things. It's just you, know, you can have one word, but it can apply to so many inventions and to, and to so many products. You know, like for example, what about water? Water not a chemical, but it's natural in nature, but you can actually die if you drink too much water. The reason why is because you overload your kidneys, and then you, you know, slowly dilute your blood so much, and your body can't handle that much fluid. So just because something is more natural doesn't mean it can't harm you or kill you. It's the same thing with chemicals. You know, you kind of have to take it into consideration what exactly you're dealing with. And most of the time when it comes to chemicals, there's a suggested ratio, like a two-to-one ratio. Like, for example, there are some um, chemicals or soaps that I use to clean my floors because there are some substances, even natural substances, that you can't use on laminated floors because it will break down the lamination, even something that's more natural or quote-unquote organic. So there are certain things that you have to use on different types of floors, whether it's tile, laminate, wood, concrete, whatever the case may be. But here's the thing. On the label it says this is how much of this product you should add to this amount of water. So basically you you are wanting to dilute the, the product that you're using so that way it's not just completely filled with 100% of whatever chemical or soap you're using because a lot of these products are made to be diluted basically so you you don't you don't need to have like how I word this 100 pure substance in order for it to do the job that's why some of these chemicals are tested to see okay what's the minimum that can be used you know to clean a floor or to clean windows or to you know have a, a specific type of oil in your car you know everything across the board there that's why these things are tested within the private sector, what this is talking about in the EPA is they're talking about chemicals that, you know, maybe the manufacturer did test them, but the EPA is setting standards so that slowly it's becoming more common knowledge about, hey, what should we be using and what should we not be using and at what rate and at what ratio. So I just want to make a note with that. It says here, to manage the agency's expanding legal mandates and workload, by the end of 1979, the budget grew to about $5.4 billion, and the workforce size increased to about 13000 Now think about this. Since 1979, they have only gone up in terms of workforce size by maybe a little less than 2000 but yet their budget has gone up by $4 billion that's insane that is total mismanagement of money like what are they doing it makes no sense to me that they are spending a little over 9 billion dollars a year but yet they don't have a huge workforce and that tells me they've got some people working there that should not be working there because they're just using the federal government and the taxpayer as their little slush fund see cuz there's a the thing they have, as of I think 2020 they only have a little over 14,000 employees, but yet we still have 40,000 Superfund sites, but yet their annual budget has gone up to a little over $9 billion a year. Well, why is their budget going up so high if they're not employing way more people? Like, I would think that if your budget goes up to almost $10 billion, your workforce should double. That's what I think should happen, but if your workforce is not doubling – but your how much you're spending in terms of revenue is you 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 um you're overspending and you're mismanaging money and you have the wrong people in charge and i'm and what i'm talking about is like people that are called quote unquote administrators the, the, those are the people that are just professional paper pushers that that's the problem and we will see some of that here later let me get a drink of water hold on just a second Good old-fashioned Ozarka water, one of my favorites. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the 80s for just a little bit. It says, in 1980, following the discovery of many abandoned or mismanaged hazardous waste sites, such as Love Canal, Congress passed the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, nicknamed Superfund. The new law authorized EPA to cast a wider net for parties responsible for sites contaminated by previous hazardous waste disposal and established a funding mechanism for assessment and cleanup. So this would make sense as to why there are so many Superfund sites that were added to the national priorities list in the 80s because that's when a lot of this stuff started getting named Superfund because that's when they started identifying, hey, we've got a bigger problem here than we realize in terms of hazardous waste sites. So basically, they were already aware of some of these sites, but yet... They were trying to figure out, oh, wow, we've got quite a few that are really bad. So then they created the national priorities list. So technically you have two lists. You have the Superfund site list, which there's 40,000 of them. Then you have the national priorities list, which is like critical state, a little over 1,300 of them in the United States that are really critical that they get cleaned up as soon as possible. But most of them have not been cleaned up. And this has been going on Since before the 1980s. So yes, they put them on the Superfund site list in the 80s, but they were already a problem way before then. And there were different agencies within the federal government that were already aware of these sites that were hazardous. It's just they had not come under one umbrella until President Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency. So he consolidated this responsibility so that way they could try and handle and clean up these sites a lot quicker and a lot better. And so that way the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. That's what President Nixon was trying to do with this. It says Ann Gorsuch, which I think is the mom of our new um, Supreme Court Justice, I can't remember his first name, but Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch. I think this is his mother. Uh, she was appointed EPA Administrator in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan. Gorsuch based her administration of EPA on the new federalism approach of downsizing federal agencies by delegating their functions and services to the individual states. Now, I agree with her on this, but I don't agree with how she did it. See, because here's the thing. What you have to remember is that pre-Ronald Reagan, our our economy and our country was mismanaged by President uh, Jimmy Carter who was an absolute moron and idiot. He did not know what he was doing. He was so ignorant. I have no doubt he tried and did his best, but it was pretty awful. So by the time Jimmy Carter got done ru- ruining the United States, we had high inflation, um, hardly any access to fuel, meaning gasoline, which is what's happening now in terms of inflation and the price of gas is going up really high. It's like Jimmy Carter Part Two right now in the United States. But what sucked was that during uh, President Carter's term, we had shortages on gas, Because we made ourselves reliant on OPEC, basically the Middle East. So that was due to Jimmy Carter and his mismanagement of uh, of the United States. And he did not understand natural fuel resources and that we need to be independent. We need to be self-reliant. We should not be relying on other countries. And because he made us reliant on other countries, first of all, in regards to oil and gas, it drove up the cost of fuel horribly in the 70s. And then we had fuel shortages. So, for example, if you're trying to get to work and you had to stop and get fuel, you know, you would have to pull up to a gas station that already had a huge line of cars. And once that gas station ran out of fuel, you were out of luck. You were stuck there with an empty tank of gas and you had no way of getting to work. That actually happened here in the United States. And that's where we're headed if we don't get these gas prices under control and if we don't start drilling here in the United States. And if we don't open up that pipeline from Canada, we need to do that because otherwise we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. And that's just stupid. We've already done that in the past. We did that under President Jimmy Carter. Let's not have you know, Jimmy Carter Part Two because it was really horrible. And if you want to know how horrible it was, just ask some of the baby boomers or your parents and they will tell you straight up, hey, you know, I may or may not have been a Democrat back back then or Republican, but, you know, those gas prices were horrible, and we had shortages, so you couldn't get to work. So if people can't get to work, how can they earn a living? So moving on, Gorsuch believed that the EPA was over-regulating businesses and that the agency was too large and not cost-effective. She's actually correct, very correct on this, because she probably realized, hey, they're spending billions of dollars, but they're not getting a lot done. During her 22 months as agency head, she cut the budget of the EPA by 22 percent, reduced the number of cases filed against polluters, relaxed Clean Air Act regulations, I don't think she should have done that, and facilitated the spraying of restricted-use pesticides. She cut the total number of agency employees and hired staff from the industries they were supposed to be regulating. That's like hiring a lobbyist. That is so unethical and so wrong. She should have never done that. Environmentalists contended that her policies were designed to placate polluters and accused her of trying to dismantle the agency. I can see why they think that way because it looks like it. You know, what she should have done is she should have really pushed forward with handling the Superfund sites and really called out the EPA on the mismanagement of funds like, she had a golden opportunity to do a lot of good, but she totally messed it up. She screwed it up. Following her mismanagement of the Superfund program, assistant administrator, remember that word, administrator, Rita Lavelle was fired by Reagan in February 1983. Lavelle was later convicted of perjury. Gorsuch had increasing confrontations with Congress over Superfund and other programs, including her refusal to submit subpoena documents. That is very unethical because you're not supposed to refuse something like that. Like, legal documents are just that. They're legal, and when they get subpoenaed, you hand them over, and you don't redact anything in them because to redact is a form of lying. Gorsuch was signed for contempt of Congress, and the White House directed the EPA to submit the documents to Congress. Gorsuch, who had recently remarried, becoming Anne Gorsuch Burford, resigned in March 1983, followed by resignations of her deputy administrator and most of her assistant administrators. So basically, she, she surrounds herself by bad people. So again, you've got these professional paper pushers, a.k.a. administrators. They don't really care to do the right thing, and they don't make good judgment calls. Well, that reflects negatively on the person that hired them, which would be Miss Gorsuch in this case. She may have had good intentions, but it didn't come out that way. Reagan then appointed William Ruckelhaus as EPA administrator for a second term. L.M. Thomas succeeded Ruckelhaus as administrator in 1985. In April 1986, when the Chernobyl disaster occurred in the Ukraine, the EPA was tasked with identifying any impacts on the United States and keeping the public informed. That's very important to do that. Administrator Lee Thomas assembled an interagency team, including personnel from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and the Department of Energy to monitor the situation. That's actually really smart to do that because he's trying to bring the best and the brightest together to monitor the situation because Chernobyl was really horrible. I don't know what you know about Chernobyl, but it could have been totally avoided. It, It never needed to happen, and it was really bad. And they had nuclear toxic ash that was in the air. I mean, it killed a lot of people. It deformed people. And it made a lot of people infertile, both men and women. And, it, and if there were pregnant women that were exposed to that nuclear waste, their, their kids were screwed up in the womb. Basically, they were born deformed or retarded, things like that. So it was very important that they figure out, okay, how does this affect the planet and how does this affect the United States? Because they do need to know that. So it goes on to say, they held press conferences for 10 days. That same year, Congress passed the Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act, which authorized the EPA to gather data on toxic chemicals and share this information with the public. Really think about that, because prior to that passing, the Community Right to Know Act, This is why the general public did not really know what was going on, especially back in the 50s and 60s, and that's why there was an outcry from the general public. Once they did find out there was toxic waste in regards to cyanide being dumped into their rivers in Ohio, which is just cruel for an industry to do that. I mean, I would think they would know better. To me, they were lazy, but you know, that's in the past. We're moving forward, but my point is this, is that you know, the general public, if they're not made aware of something, then literally they don't know. They literally don't know. And they need to be made aware of this. So good for the EPA. They want people to be aware. That is really good. The EPA also researched the implications of stratospheric ozone depletion. Under Administrator Thomas, EPA joined with several international organizations to perform a risk assessment of stratospheric ozone which helped provide motivation for the Montreal Protocol, which was agreed to in August 1987. Now, I will say this. I do think it is important to exchange ideas with other people across the globe, but we need to be careful who we align ourselves with on an international level because the United States is a democracy. Not every country that's overseas is a democracy, and not all of them truly believe in freedom. So we need to be careful who we associate with and what we sign in terms of documents and what we are willing to work on. Because the last thing I would want is for the United States to be fitting the bill for someone else's research in in another country. When We need to be focusing on the United States because we are responsible for our country. We are not responsible for other people's countries. And I'll say this, even though the United States does have its problems with Superfund sites, and toxic hazardous waste, the problems we have here are nothing compared to the pollution that India and China are doing and have been doing for a long time. But no one calls them out on it because we do business with their industries over there. So just so you know, yes, we have frustrating situations here in the United States, but India and China, they pollute way worse than what we do, way worse. So we need to be careful that whoever... We sign documents with in terms of you know saying, hey, we're going to do this and that with the environment and stuff like that. We need to make sure that we are not punishing ourselves and we are not punishing the United States. That's what some of these international agreements do. They basically want to stifle our economy. Well, that is not how you run a country. You don't allow other people to run your country. They don't pay taxes here. They're not president here. They don't hold a public office. You know, for sure, we can definitely exchange ideas, but we are not beholden to anybody. We are not. We are the United States. We are number one for a reason. So don't sell out your country just for some stupid cause or for some conference that claims to be helping the planet. I would think that if, if the European Union, if they really want to help the planet, they need to help India and China clean up their act. I don't mean shaming and blaming. I'm not talking about that. We, we have enough of that on the planet, and we don't need that. You know, there are so many, for example, um, what are they called, paper mills or paper plants over in India and China. They are dumping all this toxic, hazardous waste into the rivers that run through the villages that are near these plants over there. So I would think that if we really want to help the planet we need to focus on the individual items that are happening the individual problems. And there should be no shaming or blaming. We should just say, "Hey, we are aware that you have a paper mill plant in India or China or wherever and be specific and say, "Hey, what are you doing to help them clean that up? Do you need any technology to help you clean that up?" That doesn't mean we give them our patents or our secrets not by any means. That's that would be totally dumb and stupid to do that, but We can always help other people realize, hey, you shouldn't be polluting like that. And if you do, you need to clean it up. Because if you really care about your people and your country, you need to avoid doing what you're doing. There's nothing wrong with saying that and doing that. My my point is that we need to be careful not to sign agreements with other countries that that bring about punishments on our country. You know, like taxes or levies or things like that. Not appropriate at all. We are not the problem in this planet. If anything, the United States has been helping a lot of people for many years and sending a lot of money outside of our country when we need those monies here in the United States. So just be aware that whenever they say, you know, for example, our leaders are, are meeting up at a conference or they're um, having a meeting with the powers that be in these other countries and these leaders and they're going to talk about the environment, I really want to know, really, are they just blowing wind over there? Because are they going to talk about the stuff that's going on in India and China and what they're doing and polluting? Because neither of them are truly free countries. India still has the caste system and China is communist. So I think we should, you know, if we're going to talk about the facts, we need to call a spade a spade on this. And this is why I'm all for focusing on the United States, because India is not our problem. China is not our problem. They need to be responsible for themselves. Because the more someone is responsible for themselves, the more they care. That's the thing. The more they start to wake up to being an adult and to taking ownership of whatever is going on. But if we nanny people and we nanny these other nations guess what are they really ever going to hold themselves hold themselves accountable and are they really going to start doing the right thing probably not and what's interesting is that the two biggest polluters which is india and china they are the top two most populated um, countries on this planet but yet they pollute the most I find that very interesting. Just a little side note. It goes on to say in 1988, during his first presidential campaign, George H. W. Bush was vocal about environmental issues. So again, both Republicans and Democrats both care about this. Following his election victory, he appointed William K. Riley, an environmentalist, as the EPA administrator. Under Riley's leadership, the EPA implemented voluntary programs and initiated the development of a cluster rule, From multimedia regulation of the pulp and paper industry, I completely agree with that because you would be surprised how toxic it is to make paper. Just the the waste that comes out of that, you know, the byproduct, it's it's not clean. It can be really horrible. It says at the time the environment was increasingly being recognized as a regional issue, which was reflected in 1990 amendment of the Clean Air Act and new approaches by the agency. So now we're going to swing into the 1990s, take a quick look at this. It says in 1992, the EPA and the Department of Energy launched the Energy Star Program, a voluntary program that fosters energy efficiency. Now let me say this, I'm all for energy efficiency, but I do know that washers and dryers that say they are energy efficient, they are total crap. They suck. Excuse my language, I can't stand those machines. Because they're usually smaller and they don't work as good. You can't fit as much in them. And then also, they don't clean as good. So technically, whenever I'm having to use a so-called energy-efficient machine, especially a washer, I'm having to wash stuff twice because it's not using, using as much water. And the soaps that they specifically make for the so-called energy-efficient machines, it's, it's lousy, horrible soap, and it usually gives me an allergic reaction, which I don't like using that at all then the dryers don't dry as much because they don't get as hot. So then you're having to dry your clothes twice. Now, does that make sense? Because now you're just driving up your electric bill. So just think about that. Oh, another thing. Um, a guy, a handyman that owns his own company that repairs washers and dryers, he was telling me that if you do need to buy a new washer or dryer, do not buy the fancy energy-efficient ones because they use a lot of control panels, like a lot of touchscreen stuff. And he said if one of those circuits goes out or something breaks on it, you basically cannot replace the whole panel. You might as well just buy a new machine because the panel to replace it costs a lot of money because we ship those in from, like, Vietnam or somewhere. It's not even made in the United States. So he said to just buy the large, old-fashioned washer and dryers. are like the cheaper ones that they sell at Lowe's and Home Depot. And so they... They just run a lot better. Like they have the buttons and the turn knobs. He said those are better because you're not using electrical fuses behind it, like behind the knobs. Like there's not a control panel there. So if something breaks on a little turn knob, it's way easier to fix and it's way cheaper. And you won't, you typically will not need to buy a new machine. But this guy was totally right because he was having to get called out to all these people's houses. I mean, yes, it makes him money. But he's telling people, hey, you're buying crappy washers and dryers. Just because it says it's energy efficient, that doesn't mean it actually is. And if one little part breaks on it, you might as well just throw out the whole machine. Well, is that really being environmentally safe if you're having to throw out all these machines all the time, using up all this metal and it's filling up our landfills? Obviously, that's not really the way to go. So needless to say... If you have a really good washer and dryer and it's super old, keep it till like the end of time because they are made way better than these newer ones. It goes on to say Carol Browner was appointed the EPA Administrator by President Bill Clinton and served from 1993 to 2001. Major projects during Browner's term include initiation of the Brownfields pilot program in 1995, initial hazardous air pollution standards for petroleum refineries in 1995, Initial lead paint abatement regulations under TSCA in 1996. and update of the National Ambient Air Quality Standards for um, Particular Matter and Ozone in 1997. Since the passage of the Superfund Law in 1980, an excise tax had been levied on the chemical and petroleum industries to support the cleanup trust fund. I agree with that, but to a certain extent. Congressional authorization of the tax was due to expire in 1995. Although Browner and the Clinton administration supported continuation of the tax, Congress declined to reauthorize it. I disagree with Congress on this because they needed to authorize that. Subsequently, the Superfund program has been supported only by annual appropriations, greatly reducing the number of waste sites that are remediated in a given year. In 2021, Congress reauthorized an excise tax on chemical manufacturers. I agree with them on this, but here's the thing. All right, so you have this excise tax, right, on chemical manufacturers, and that tax goes towards paying to clean up Superfund sites. But here's the thing. Superfund sites, 70% of them um, are caused or cleaned up by people in the private sector. But unfortunately, because... The EPA passed more federal laws in regards to Superfund sites. You have to remember, it gave them permission to go after people more vigorously and uh, more viciously and also retroactively. So what the EPA gave themselves permission to do was to go after people financially, bankrupt them, and confiscate their, pro- their property so these businesses and these people They had no way of cleaning up what happened because they were stripped of their right to do it. They were bankrupted by the federal government, by the EPA, by a federal agency that had gotten so big, so out of control, it was just targeting citizens. That's why Gorsuch, she was trying to minimize basically the unlawfulness of the EPA because she saw that it was a federal agency that was growing rapidly out of control And it was starting to target the private sector because it wanted the money out of the private sector. It wasn't trying to help people. It was punishing them. That's why she was trying to minimize the bad effects of that federal agency. It's just she put the wrong people in charge and then she kind of made some really bad decisions in regards to that. But she was correct. And we see that here. So this is why that tax had to be re-implemented, re-implemented excuse me, because the EPA has been going after people so viciously in the courts that people can't even afford to clean up their messes because they've got to deal with the EPA fining them and threatening them and then taking them to court. When initially the EPA was created to help people not criminalize or go for the throat, but that's what the EPA is doing now. And now they've got a tax. They have re-implemented the tax because, yet again, private citizens and, and businesses cannot afford to deal with the repercussions of the EPA. So now, see, how do word this? So sometimes the federal government, these agencies, the way they make it seem like they're important or that we need them and that what they're doing is okay is they cause a problem. And then they use that problem to give themselves permission to authorize a tax. And that tax is paid by you and me, the American people, whenever we're dealing with chemical manufacturers and their products. So basically we're paying this excise tax, but yet the EPA is saying, see, look, you need us. You need our help because look at these bad people. Well, guess what? If the EPA would actually switch gears from going to shaming and blaming and punishing to helping and restoring and renewing would not need an excise tax. And plus, they wouldn't have a $9 billion budget every year because if they actually helped people clean things up, then they wouldn't need such a large budget because they wouldn't have as many Superfund sites that need to be cleaned up because they would actually get cleaned up. See, the EPA, its initial job was to work with people, not against people. That's why the EPA has gotten so far off track. It is possible to get them back on track, but we at least have to acknowledge the facts as to what has been happening here. So it says here, major uh, legislation updates during the Clinton administration were the Food Quality Protection Act and the 1996 amendments to the Safe Drinking Water Act. So good there. The Clinton administration, they did do some good. One thing that I know they did not good or they did not do in a very kind, ethical, uh, moral manner, was um, they passed a, a a tax bracket or a tax law that collected taxes retroactively on people. So basically they retroactively collected taxes on past wages. And not even in an EPA way. This was just like across the board. If that's not evil, I don't know what is. Because that's like someone saying, oh, yeah, you know that money you made 10 years ago? Yeah, we know you already paid taxes on it, but now we want you to pay even more. That's not right. That's why retroactive punishment is not appropriate. It's actually unlawful and illegal. But sometimes people get away with stuff. It's unfortunate. But I'm going on. I want to talk about the... The different offices—they have like 43 different offices within the EPA, and I did say 43. So they have 12 divisions, but they have 43 offices. So this is why the EPA is such um, a large bureaucracy. It's because they have too many offices. They have too many hands with their hand. They have too many people with their hands in the pie or in the pot, and that's why they have such a large budget of nine billion dollars. Nine billion dollars. Is because they have too many people, and then they're not getting stuff done. So let's go over some of these offices. So the first one is Office of the Administrator, and it says, As of October 2020, the office consists of 12 divisions, but yet there are technically 43 offices, which is way too many. Because here's the thing, whenever you hear the word office, in terms of uh The federal government or even the state government, it's basically job creation where people don't really have to be held accountable for their work, but yet they are collecting wages. Which means our tax dollars are going towards these cushy jobs and cushy benefits, but they're not being held accountable for the work that they are supposed to be doing. That's just how it is in the federal government. So let's see here. They have the Office of Administration and Executive Services. Who knows what that means? Office of Children's Health Protection. What I've noticed with the federal government, they will use children, anything to do with children as a way to get more tax revenue. Oh, we've got to do it for the kids. Oh, we've got to do this. So they pull at your heartstrings. It's like, well, you know, if they really cared about kids, they would have already cleaned up all those 40,000 Superfund sites. Because some of these Superfund sites are near water supplies, they they are near uh, elementary schools. They are near rivers and streams, and they are also near residential areas. So if they really cared about children, they would have cleaned all this stuff up instead of just creating more offices within their agency, so that way they could tax us more. That's the thing. That's what I mean by the proof is in the pudding. You know, are, are there concerns legit possibly? But you know what's what's actually coming to fruition. We actually need to see the facts here. Then they have Children's Health Protection Advisory Committee. Again, if they really cared about kids, they would have cleaned up these Superfund sites. They wouldn't let them be sitting there since the 80s. So then we have the Office of Civil Rights. And this is within the EPA. Civil rights have nothing to do with the environment. Nothing. It doesn't matter whether you're white, black, Hispanic, whatever color you are. It doesn't matter. Because the environment belongs to all of us. So why do we need a civil rights office within the EPA? Again, it's a waste of money. It's just you know these people that have like a hashtag and they have an agenda and they're like, oh, I have a cause, so let's put money to this. Well, I'm sorry, civil rights are, impor- are important, but it, it has nothing to do with the environment. A tree doesn't know whether you're black or white. It doesn't. It has no clue, but the environment belongs to all of us. So I've noticed that sometimes when people within the federal um, government, whenever they start talking about civil rights, sometimes it's to cause division because they know they can get more money out of the taxpayer if they claim that there's a problem or if they feed off of another problem that's already there. That, to me, is waste, and it's really kind of a character flaw when they're doing stuff like that. Because it's like crying wolf when you don't really have a wolf. So it kind of concerns me a little bit. The next one is Office of Congressional and Intergovernmental Relations. I don't know what that means. Do they need to have bagels with each other once a week and discuss things? I don't know what that means. The next one is Office of Continuous Improvement. Well, you know, if they were continuously improving things, then why do we still have 40,000 Superfund sites? Why haven't they been cleaned up? They have continuously not been cleaned up, so we have not really had improvements, at least at the rate that we should have had. Then we have Office of the Executive Secretariat. I have no idea what that means. Sounds like a fancy title. We have Office of Homeland Security. Homeland Security is its own agency, so it doesn't need to be in EPA. Homeland Security was created after 9-11 because our government had a knee-jerk reaction and created this new department called Homeland Security. And that's why we have TSA agents that are typically very moody and not very nice. But they, they have nothing to do with the EPA. So I don't know why they have an Office of Homeland Security within the EPA, other than it's more wasteful federal spending. Then we have Office of Policy. I don't know if that if that has anything to do with the amendments or the acts that they try and pass. I don't know if that deals with legislation. I'm just guessing. Office of Public Affairs. Then we have Office of Public Engagement and Environmental Education. That might actually be good because if that's part of how they educate the public about things, then I'm all for that. Next one is Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization. I think it's kind of hypocritical. For them to have an office that's called that, because the EPA has bankrupted so many companies and has put people out of business and then confiscated their land, their property, from private citizens. So the EPA has helped businesses become disadvantaged. They have caused a lot of these problems, a lot of these businesses to go out of business because they have over punished or, or excessively punished people instead of helping them with their business, instead of helping them, you know, with the environment and things like that, they punished them and they depleted them of their financial assets. So then a lot of these people had to declare bankruptcy in terms of their company and privately. And then they confiscate their property, even though it's private property. Again, that's a perfect example of where the federal government causes a problem. To make it seem like, oh, you need us, you need us, and then we, we are the problem solver. Well, they may solve some problems, but it's, it's like, why are we creating problems? The, sometimes the federal government purposely creates problems just to make it look like we actually need them, and then they use that to get people to believe that they need to raise taxes to take more of our, more of our money out of our paycheck. That's the problem. Because if they actually cared about small businesses, then the EPA, and the federal government, would not create a disadvantaging protocol where they go after people like that. They go for the throat on these people's companies. Because again, the EPA was not created to go after people. It was created to help protect, restore, and renew the environment. That means you help the people that actually had the problem at their site. You don't give yourself permission to steal from people, but that's what the EPA has been doing. That's why people have been so irritated with the EPA, you know, at least for the last 10 or 20 years. Again, the EPA started out with a great, wonderful, common good kind of goal, but it's way out of whack now. The next one is the Science Advisory Board. That one might actually be interesting because I do believe in science. Next one is Office of Air and Radiation. That one's good. Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention. That one's good. Office of the Chief Financial Officer. I sure would love to see their bank statements, considering that they have a $9 billion budget. I would want to know how much of those monies are actually going towards cleaning stuff up and getting it done. That's what I want to know. Next one is Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance. I just wonder if that is a... An an office within this agency that is utilized to go after private citizens. That would concern me with that because what are they enforcing and then what are they trying to have be compliant? You know, I just wonder if that's one avenue that they're using to go after people in district courts. That would concern me with that. Then we have the Office of the General Counsel, which is an attorney, Office of Inspector General, probably also an attorney. Office of International and Tribal Affairs. I don't think we need to be concerned with international affairs because we need to be focused on the United States first. We've got our own problems. We need to deal with it here first at home. I am glad that they're taking into consideration tribal affairs because the Indian tribes, they suffer a lot because first of all, they have all the crimes. They have a lot of crimes on the reservations. They do not practice democracy. They practice, I guess, kind of, Tribal government, which really is not ethical or lawful, um, they have a lot of fraud within these Indian tribes. And a lot of them have casinos, and there's a lot of fraud in regards to that because you're dealing with a lot of money. Also, the Indian tribes have been uh, supposedly given free health care, and it's not free because we're paying for it. However, they have all these Indian clinics here in Oklahoma, and they're absolutely horrible because it's subpar Basically, socialized medicine. So it's basically where the government makes these promises, we're going to take care of you, but then they give them the worst possible medical care. It's almost like how they treat our veterans at the VA. So basically, whatever's going on at these Indian clinics and within the VA, that is already socialized medicine, and and we already know it's lousy and horrible, and the government can't really handle it because it's very much like the DMV, and that it doesn't really care about people. It just wants your money. So it's, it's a form of greed, basically. But we technically already have socialized medicine. It's just being dumped on our Indian tribes, which I can't stand that. Because I think that if you're going to make a promise to help somebody, especially in healthcare, you need to give them five-star treatment, not one-star treatment, five-star treatment. Because I wouldn't, I would not tolerate one-star treatment. That's disgusting. That's pathetic. And plus the taxpayer is paying for, for good quality healthcare. Good quality health care does not come from socialized medicine. So just FYI on that. The next one is Office of Mission Support. I don't know what that means. Next one is Office of Research and Development, which I agree with that because we do need to continue to have research and development because we learn stuff all the time, and that's great. So within this particular department is immediate office, immediate office of the assistant administrator. Again, worthless job, just a professional paper pusher. Then we have Office of Science Advisor Policy and Engagement, probably another useless, uh, high-paying job. Then we have Office of Science Information Management. I could see that being useful because you're probably dealing with data. Next one is Office of Resource Management. I kind of find that hypocritical that they have that because if they were actually managing the resources in the EPA, they would not need a budget of $9 billion but yet still have 40,000 Superfund sites in the United States that still have not been cleaned up. So, obviously, they're not managing stuff very well. Next one is Center for Computational Toxicology and Exposure. That one I agree with. Next one is a Center for Environmental Measurement and Modeling. I agree with that one. Next one is Center for Public Health and Environmental Assessment. Yeah, kind of weak on that one. Next one is Center for Environmental Solutions and Emergency Response. That one I agree with because... We need to be able to respond to emergencies quickly, effectively, and efficiently. Because usually when there is a, um, a catastrophe of sorts in the environment, we can't just sit back and throw our hands up in the air because it's too big of a risk. So I am in favor of that one because anything we can do to help um, correct an emergency, the better. Because it protects us. It protects everybody. The next office is Office of Land and sorry, Office of Land and Emergency Management. And this one consists of the Office of Superfund Remediation and Technology Innovation. And then they have the Office of Resource Conservation and Recovery. They have Office of Underground Storage Tanks. Next one is Office of Brown Brownfield and Land Revitalization or Revitalization, excuse me. Next one is Office of Emergency Management. Next one is federal facilities restoration and reuse office. I kind of find that one hypocritical as well because the federal government is notorious for having all these buildings that it either rents or owns or leases from other people all over the United States, but yet there's nobody actually using them, so they're just wasting tax dollars on buildings that are just vacant. So I think they actually need to be held accountable for that and give the American people a refund. That's my personal opinion. The next one is office of water. It says here they have Office of Groundwater and Drinking Water. That one's good. Office of Science and Technology. Who knows what that means? That sounds really vague. Then we have Office of Wastewater Management. That sounds good. Then we have Office of Wetlands, Oceans, and Watersheds. That one sounds really good. So lastly, we're going to talk about the different regions within the United States. So in regards to the EPA, the EPA has has divided up the United States into ten regions. And this was uh, done from um, President Nixon, so he had a really good idea about that Um, because he didn't want one person to be in charge of the entire United States in regards to the EPA and trying to handle all these Superfund sites because he knew that it would definitely take a really good team to handle all this. So he was really smart in regards to that. So let's see here. If you are in Region 1, the states that are included in that is Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts. New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Vermont, also known as New England. Region 2 includes New Jersey, New York, um, the U.S. territories of Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Region 3 includes Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, and the District of Columbia. Region 4 includes Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee. The next region, let's see, it's Region 5. This one includes Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota. I love that, Minnesota. I love how they talk. I love the accent. And it also includes Ohio and Wisconsin. Region 6 includes Arkansas, Louisiana, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas. Region 7 includes Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska. Region 8 includes Colorado, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming. Region nine includes Arizona, California, Hawaii, Nevada, the territories of Guam and American Samoa, and the Navajo Nation. Region ten includes Alaska, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. So, that is really good to see all those things. Um, it you know I do have a list of like some scandals with EPA, but I don't even care to go over that or controversies. I mean, here's the thing. There's always going to be controversies when it comes to the federal government and these federal agencies, so I'm not really concerned about that because we already know there are some issues, so I'm not going to go line by line and go through all that stuff because I would rather focus on the positive than the bad because, see, here's the thing. Um, Controversies, there's always two sides to a story, right? But it kind of seems like in regards to federal agencies, Unless you call out the bureaucrats on the stuff that they're doing, then you're always going to have a controversy because you're still employing the bureaucrats, the professional paper pushers that are causing the problem. So I just kind of look at it as, yes, I'm I'm aware of these controversies. Um, Nothing is really new under the sun in terms of the EPA. They're just another federal agency that's gotten too big for their britches. They are spending way too much money, and they're not really doing a lot of work. So what else is new in regards to the federal government, but yet they want more money and they want taxes to be raised, especially on the rich. And what sucks about that is that when you punish the rich, which is what high taxation is, when you're punishing the rich, guess what? That currency is basically taken out of the flow of money in our economy. So whenever the government receives tax dollars, it's no longer being utilized within business. So the government doesn't actually create wealth. It can print money, which can also cause inflation, unfortunately. But here's the thing. Our country is actually a lot more successful when taxes are lower. Because when taxes are lower, that means more people have more money in their bank account and they have more money in their pocket to spend. Meaning, if you look at the opposite of that, if people have less money in their pocket to spend, guess what? They're not going to do as much business. They're not going to open as much business. They're not going to hire as many people. And they're not going to be able to afford to hire people, much less pay for their health insurance. Things like that. So it's actually better for a free country like ours, one that is founded on democracy and freedom, it's better if we have low taxes all across the board. And I'll give an example of where taxes have completely failed. California. Their taxes are so ridiculous People are, people are leaving there like a herd of elephants. It's unfortunate because California is such a beautiful and wonderful state. They have really wonderful people. I mean, yeah, sure, they got some nutty ones too, but overall California is a really good and wonderful state. It's just that their people keep electing these nutty Democrats that don't understand how to balance a checkbook, which you think would be basic remedial math. But sometimes people, when they view things from a, from a slush fund point of view, they're not good at managing other people's money. So basically, you have people in charge of the state budget, and then they're just increasing taxes across the board, especially property tax, which is insane. Because every so often I look at houses in different states because I want to see what's going on in, in the housing industry. California, whoa, whoa there was a house that was maybe a 1,000 square feet. It was like $900,000, if not a million. For a little over a 1,000 square feet. That is insane. And it was a crappy house. Like, it had bars on the window. It was in a bad area. And it was in a horrible neighborhood. I'm like, that's how much they're having to sell their house for? See, that's what happens when you put... Incompetent people in charge of your state and in charge of your agencies within your state because they don't understand currency. They don't understand um, inflation. They don't understand interest rates. They don't understand supply and demand. They don't understand that the higher you raise taxes, the more money people do not have. So that causes inflation. So if you actually want to have a better and stronger state, especially financially, lower your taxes and for the long term. Give people a chance to keep more of their money. They still need to pay taxes, yes, I'm all for that, but they need to be reasonable because when it's unreasonable, guess what? People, they quit. They end up leaving the state, and that's what's happening right now with California. So many people are leaving California and going to Texas, and that's why Texas is not very happy Because they don't want a bunch of Democrats that voted in bad people in California to come out to Texas and start voting in a bunch of bad Democrats there. And they don't want the state of Texas to be ruined. I mean, Texas already has high real estate tax, but it's not as bad as California. It is nothing like California. See, what I find interesting is whenever people... And don't get me wrong, I love Democrats. But what I don't understand is whenever... They vote in people that are pro-taxes and really high taxes. And then whenever these people that they vote in ruin their state, they ruin their state financially, put it in the tank, and they're pretty much bankrupt. They think, oh, well, now I can't live here in this state because now I don't have a good job. I can't afford to live here. I'll just move someplace else. Well, then guess what? Then wherever they move to, then they start voting Democrat there. It's like really like all you're doing – it's causing problems in multiple states wherever you live, because you keep voting you keep voting incorrectly. And I don't just mean democrat-wise, I just mean like, you need to vote in good Democrats. And there are good Democrats out there. I've met some really kind Democrats over the years, some of them nicer than Republicans, <laughs> which is kind of funny for me to say that because I'm a capitalist, but um, I miss the good old-fashioned Democrats that they're moderates, they care about people, but they're not crazy. They're not um, unrealistic about taxation. And they're not so extreme government programs because they know that government programs, they don't solve problems. In fact, they cause a lot of problems. I miss those Democrats because those people are actually smart. They actually care to help people. But if you're one of these Democrats that just thinks that we should vote in all this high taxation, you're actually not for helping people, you're actually for punishing people. And those people are your neighbor. They are your relatives. So it doesn't really make sense to me why someone would continue to vote in a way that's not healthy for our country, that's not healthy for our economy, and it's causing a lot of problems. A lot of problems. So I hope and pray that you know, if there are Democrats listening to this podcast, first of all, no, I love you. You guys are awesome. I just hope and pray that you're not some of the crazy Democrats out there that are so pro-liberal. It's I just almost want to ask them, why do you even bother to live in the United States? Because we were not founded on liberalism. We were founded on democracy and freedom. If anything, we were founded on, on extreme conservatism because the people that founded our country – were against tyranny because they knew that one way a government could authorize tyranny was through high taxation and through unlawful taxes. And that's what the British monarchy did to the colonists over here before we were a country. And this is why we became our own country was because we did not want tyranny anymore. We we, we did not want to be Britain's. You know, personal little slush fund for their monarchy. So if that's not what we wanted in, in the foundation and the beginning of our country, we shouldn't want any form of that now. Because if you're voting for high taxes and you're voting for all these social welfare programs that more than likely have a high chance of failing, if you're for all that, then technically you're, you're basically authorizing someone that's not you To have access to a lot more of your money, but yet they don't care about you. Just because someone cares about people or they care about the poor or they care about our veterans, just because they say they care, that doesn't mean that they really do. And it's unfortunate. I mean, we all want to give people the benefit of the doubt. That's a wonderful thing. But again, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, just think about about all the mismanagement of funds and misappropriation of funds in the VA. And yet our veterans are still not getting the quality health care that they deserve and technically that we have paid for and they have paid for because even our military is taxed. They're they're taxed because they're citizens just like you and me. So technically, their health care is not free. They technically have paid for it. And I think that when you pay for something, you should get what you pay for. And I think that if health care is going to cost as much as it does, you should get five-star treatment. Five-star treatment. That's what, just FYI, that's what President Trump was trying to do when he was addressing the problems in the VA. And instead of waiting, putting people on waiting lists, which is what the VA was doing, which is what socialized medicine does, he wanted our soldiers, our men and women, to be able to go to any doctor that they want, but yet it'd still be paid by the VA. So that way they could be seen a lot quicker and get the health care that they need and deserve. As opposed to being put on a waiting list and then not being taken seriously when they do go to their doctor's appointment, when, it's, when it is within the VA system. That's what Trump was trying to do. He was trying to privatize it because we know that privatized medicine is better than socialized medicine. Because when you have privatized medicine, it puts the patient in charge of their health care. Not some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., not some elected official, but your health care is between you and your doctor. Period. It's just between the two of you. But if you put your health care in the hands of the government, guess what? Now you've got to deal with a a government agency. And here we see, I mean, the the, the EPA can't even clean up these Superfund sites. But yet that's what they were created to do. They haven't even cleaned up half of them. I mean, they, I, I don't know what they're doing. I don't get it. We still have 40,000 Superfund sites. They identified a lot of these Superfund sites back in the 80s. But yet we still have these issues. Like, I don't get that. Like, if you or I were to be given a project or a task by our manager, and we don't complete it for over 30 years, I mean, don't you think that you and I would be fired? I, I would think so, and I would hope so, because if someone's not doing their job, they deserve to be fired. That's just how it is. But unfortunately, when you have a federal agency, it's like pulling teeth to get them to fire somebody. It is really difficult. And I bet that's what Miss Gorsuch had to deal with. She's probably had to deal with, with a lot of federal uh, red tape. And I bet she had some problems with that. But she also made some really bad decisions. So... I guess it's one of those things, you have to be careful who you associate with and who you put in um, positions of power. Because whoever you put into a position of power is a reflection of you and your character. And I bet that's why um, people resigned and others were fired and, and things of that nature. And they should have been. Because if they fail at the job and things aren't going right, hey, get somebody that can handle it. Get somebody that can get things done. But I bet there's a lot more to the story than, than, than what we've just discussed. I bet there's a lot more that was going on in, EPA, in the EPA that we don't know about from back then. Because can you imagine um, a, I guess, kind of more of a, a, a Republican way of viewing how to handle Superfund sites? Like they actually want to get stuff done. Can you imagine that and how to deal with people that have probably they don't really want to get it done. They just want the job. That That's kind of one of those things. So I don't know what all happened with that. I can only imagine, but I'm not going to speculate. But I would think it would be very difficult. Her job. But anyway, um, that is it for this podcast. We have finished up on the uh, EPA. Very fascinating. Very interesting. I learned a lot again. I'm learning just as much as you are with this. There's so many things that I was not aware of. Oh, I did want to read one more thing though. Hold on, I wanted to read the different, um, the 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 uh, what's it called? The legislation that was put into place by the EPA. And some of these are really good. I am impressed with it. So we'll probably go through some of these later in time, dive into them a little bit deeper because I think they're wonderful. Some of these, we have the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, Comprehensive Environmental Response. Compensation and Liability Act, also known as Superfund, Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act, Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, Toxic Substances Control Act, and there's one here I haven't heard of, Frank R. Lautenberg Chemical Safety for the 21st Century Act. Then we have these additional laws that were added under the EPA, Endangered Species Act. Um, energy, in, um, energy independence and security act. I kind of find that one hypocritical because it seems like whenever we get a Democrat in office, they make us more dependent on other countries for gas and oil, which is why we're having so many problems at the, at the pump with our high gas prices and why so many of our oil and gas industries are not doing that well in the United States when they should be doing well. And we also need that pipeline from Canada. So you would think that if they want us to be independent, that we should be using all forms of energy, but they they don't do that. They like to demonize certain certain industries that they think are a problem when it's like actually it's not. You know, oil and gas is a way of life for the entire planet. So good luck trying to get rid of that. You're not going to. So instead of trying to get rid of it, we should try and make it more efficient, not make it more burdensome and make it. Um, we shouldn't make it more difficult to get access to that energy or to those products, because otherwise it's just causing inflation, which is what we are seeing right now at the pump. They also enacted the Energy Policy Act, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the Food Quality Protection Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, the Oil Pollution Act, and the Pollution Prevention Act. I'm sure all those are really good, but just think we really need to be careful what all we add Um, to our laws because just because we have a good idea, that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to put it into a law and start bullying the private sector or start bullying private citizens and confiscating their lands and making it very difficult so that they can't defend themselves even in open court because everybody has a right to a fair trial. It shouldn't matter whether you have millions of dollars or not, but unfortunately, whenever the EPA comes after you, I mean, you, you kind of need millions of dollars to go up against them because, look, they have a $9 billion budget. So here's the thing. When the EPA comes after you, you're already the underdog. Already. And that's, that's kind of – it's not a good thing. But just know that um, things can always get better. They can always get better. So even though we, we've talked about some intense, serious things in regards to this, we do still need the EPA. It just needs to be handled correctly. Because I, I personally don't want the EPA to be dismantled. I would rather it be restructured. So that it's pro-America, not anti-America. Pro-citizen, not anti-citizen. Pro-private sector, not anti-private sector. Because I find it very interesting that the EPA bullies and intimidates the private sector quite a bit, but yet it's the private sector... That is paying a lot of the taxes that are actually keeping the EPA doors open. I mean, it's just kind of like you would think the EPA would be more grateful to the private sector for, for providing them tax dollars. But they're not. So kind of sad, but that's just one of those things where you have a federal agency that thinks it's better than what it really is. Do they have a noble cause? Yes. Do they have a good cause? Yes, by all means all means. I obviously care. But when you get off track of what your your initial goal and what your initial purpose is or was, that's where a lot of these problems occur. And that's what we're seeing with EPA, unfortunately. But I do think things can turn around and get better. And I hope and pray that it does. Because, I mean, I pray for institutions like this. Because, I mean, I recognize that we do need the EPA, because Oklahoma has Superfund sites. We still have some. So it's like, if I want those to be cleaned up, and if I care about the environment, then obviously I have to acknowledge that the EPA actually does do some good. Not as much as it used to. But we actually do still need this agency. It just needs to be restructured. So that way it reflects the integrity and the kindness of the United States. Because right now, it's not... It hasn't been however this it hasn't been run in such a way that reflects integrity or kindness. It's been a bully. And and that's not appropriate because we're not supposed to treat citizens like that. I think it sets a bad example for other countries as well. So again, we can always do better and I think it's a great opportunity to learn. So no problem with that. I love learning new wonderful things, so that is always good. But until next time, I will go ahead and let you go. Um, I pray that you're happy, healthy, and whole, that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.